Hi friends and welcome to the Do Life Better podcast where you'll find all the tips, habits and strategies you need to help you do your life even better each and every day. My name is Dave Jorner and thank you for joining me today. Now, have you ever had a moment like this before? And it's often in these moments of disappointment where different ways of thinking really, really stand out. Now, this morning, my wife and I had the opportunity to go out for breakfast. We haven't done this for quite a while, so we thought, let's take the opportunity. We'll go out this morning, and we wanted to go to our favorite place. And so she's going to go straight to work afterwards. So our favorite spot is on the way to her work. I thought, that's convenient. It's got our favorite meal. It's a nice spot. Let's go there. When we got there, it was fully booked out because you can only have about 10 people in a coffee shop now because of all the restrictions. And there was this moment of disappointment of thinking, well, now what? Like we were looking forward to going here. We haven't been here for ages and we just want to sit here and enjoy the coffee and the meal and now what? And whenever you've been in a situation like that where you've been looking forward to going somewhere and it's shut or it's booked out or it's way too busy, have you had those moments where there's someone in the group Who's like, no, if we can't get in, we're not going. It's either here or nowhere. We're going home, everyone. Then there's someone else who's like, no, it doesn't matter. Like, if we can't get in here, let's just go somewhere else. There's going to be nice meals somewhere else. And, you know, it's really easy to get stuck in that first way of thinking, a really rigid way where we think it's either this way or it's nothing. And we can't possibly see any other alternatives. And then you get times when we can think more openly. We can be a lot more creative and optimistic and hopeful and more expansive in our thinking and see far more options. Like this morning, we both kind of went through both versions of those ways of thinking. Like we were so disappointed. We're like, oh, well, what are we going to do now? Do we just not worry about it or do we try to find somewhere else? And because we were disappointed, it actually took a while to find somewhere else to go. And we ended up finding somewhere. It was great. The meal was awesome. But this idea of the way we think about those difficult moments has a big impact on our resilience. And in fact, this is called psychological flexibility. And Dr. Justin Coulson talks about this in the second part of the chat I had with him. Uh, You might remember last week was the first half of the chat, and this week is the second half. He's shared so much gold throughout our quite long conversation that I decided to split it in half. And we pick up the conversation today where he talks about the idea of psychological flexibility and how to develop it in yourself and in others as well. We also talks about the idea of what resists persists. Now, this is a really powerful one. It's one, in fact, that I've been sharing a lot with my family and friends uh, to help them through some difficult times these last few weeks. And I know it's going to be beneficial for you. Also, make sure you stick around to the end of this episode because Justin shares one of the most inspirational real-life examples of resilience that I've heard for a long time. Now, Dr. Justin Coulson of Happy Families has many journal articles and scholarly book chapters, as well as several books and ebooks about parenting, including The 21 Days to a Happier Family, which I'm partway through reading now, and The Nine Ways to a Resilient Child, which I've just finished reading. Justin is also a highly sought after international speaker, delivering keynote speeches and workshops to boost well being and improve relationships for parents, teachers, students, and employees. He has worked with the Commonwealth Bank, American Express, the Office of Children's E-Safety Commissioner, the Federal Government's Department of Social Services, Life Education and hundreds of schools. Justin is an honorary fellow at the Centre for Positive Psychology in the Graduate School of Education at the University of Melbourne. 
He is a consultant to the federal government's Office of the Children's E-Safety Commissioner and has acted and continues to act in an advisory capacity to the well-known organisations including Beyond Blue, the Raising Children's Network and Life Education. Justin is also constantly sought after by the media for his expertise. He writes a weekly advice column for Sydney's Daily Telegraph, appears regularly on the project The Today Show, Studio 10, Mornings and several radio stations around the nation. He is also the parenting expert at kidspot.com.au, Australia's number one parenting website. Now, during this chat, Justin shares the importance of psychological flexibility and how to develop it, why what you resist persists and what you need to do instead. These are really important. And also an inspiring story of the incredible power of resilience that had both of us choking up. Now, as a heads up, you will notice a background noise while Justin is talking and it sounds like static. Well, this noise is actually the rain outside his window. It was absolutely bucketing down the day we did this recording. Now, make sure that you share it on social media. Please tag Dr. Justin Coulson and myself uh, on Instagram and also share it with friends or family who you know will benefit from these messages as well. So for now, let's get into it. I hope you really enjoyed this half of the chat with Dr. Justin Coulson. I'll have to ask you about this as well, the idea about psychological flexibility, because in difficult, stressful moments, we can get so fixed on one way of thinking. It can be really difficult to be open to different possibilities because our brain enters into threat state. Why is psychological flexibility so important to resilience and how do we build it? Let me share a study with you. And I might actually talk to you about a couple of things that I've got in the book that sort of help to outline why that matters. So I open up the chapter of the book here by talking about some research by Barbara Fredrickson. Barbara Fredrickson got people to come into the lab and they they had to watch a video clip. There were five different video clips uh, to induce different moods. Okay, so... One of the video clips. Do you remember? Um, you remember Cliffhanger, the Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, yeah great movie. Uh, and 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 there's this there's this really tense opening scene where they're out climbing, and I don't know if it's his girlfriend. I can't remember now. It was a long time ago. But his girlfriend or a, a female friend moves out onto the rope, and then uh, her her harness slips, and she's over this gaping chasm, and it looks like she's about to die. And I, it's just it's tremendously frightening, uh, and, and it really gets you. It really gets a lot of negative or heightened emotions going because it's it's so scary. Then there's um, there's another clip that uh, is is a comedy. I think it's from Seinfeld or something like that. There's a clip from uh, Schindler's List, which is just devastatingly sad. And then there's a clip that's uh, got no emotion at all. It's actually a, a documentary about sticks or something like that. I mean, it's just it's it's totally totally nothing. And what Fredrickson wanted to see was when we induce mood, what happens to the way that people are thinking? What she discovered is that when people are experiencing what we would very loosely call negative emotions, okay, we'll use that term just for simplicity's sake. It's not exactly accurate, but it's, it's close enough. The feel bad emotions. Well, yeah, yeah. Sadness, fear, anxiety, that kind of stuff. Um, people's thinking became really narrowed. People were not able to think beyond the moment. They just couldn't see a whole lot of possibility in what was coming up. 
um, when people were experiencing positive emotions, they were able to think really expansively and come up with lots of ideas and be really creative. Now, there are limits to this at both ends, but essentially what she argued was that negative emotions, they, they cause rigidity and narrowness, tunnel vision, inflexibility in our thinking. Whereas positive emotions open us up to a whole lot of new experiences, curiosity, uh, you know, what, what, what else can I learn? What else can I create? Where, where can I go mm. from here? Now, again, I, I want to emphasize that there is sometimes a really good reason for negative emotions. Like if you're an engineer and you're designing a bridge, you probably want to be a little bit more negative than positive. Okay? <laughs> or if, if you're an accountant and you're doing my taxes, you probably want to be a little bit more negative than positive. I, I want you to say, oh, no, you can't get away with that. No, we're not going to be too creative with our accounting. You know, we, do, we don't want to do any of that sort of stuff with those sorts of things. But most of the time, we, we're looking for positive, creative uh, options. And, and when we're feeling positive emotions, we're much more likely to have those, which means that we're going to be more resilient. We'll try more things. When we've got negative thinking, we start to get really narrow and really focused on, well, this is the only way. And what the research seems to show is that people who believe there's only one way uh, people who are fixed in their thinking tend not to be particularly psychologically flexible and they tend to not be so resilient. So what we really want to do, I think, is encourage our kids to be psychologically flexible. I remember um, one mum, her name was Michelle, she told me about her son Noah on a sports day at school. And, and I, just, I love this story because this kid, Noah, he's in about grade nine and um, he's He's in one of those teams, you know, you know, on the athletics days where they get whole of school, you know, grade seven through to grade 12, yeah. all competing together. Well, this was actually a primary school and high school combined. And they were trying to create a sense of common purpose and unity uh, through competition and, you know, trying to destroy the other guys. And so what they basically did was uh, they were playing captain ball or tunnel ball or something like that. Uh, you know, one of those games where you've got to throw the ball to each other and then duck down and throw it back and then run around to the back. And uh, if, if you play that, you know, and if you don't, it sounds like I'm waffling, but one of these uh, one of these kids was in like grade four or grade five and just couldn't play very well at all. A grade seven boy starts yelling at him, come on, stop dropping the ball, do it, yeah, throw it harder, blah, blah, and he really starts laying in him because the grade seven kid was like, we've got to win. Mm. And this has been set up as a competition and we've got to win. But the more the grade seven kid yelled at the grade four or grade five boy, the more intimidated that poor kid became. The grade seven boy had a really narrow, rigid focus. And I guess you could say so did the little kid. The little kid just didn't have the skills to to actually satisfy the demands of the situation. But this year nine boy, Noah, Michelle described how once this year seven boy started to get a little bit too much, he yelled out to the year seven boy and said, hey, it's just a game. It's not that big a deal. It doesn't matter if we win or lose. What matters more is how he's feeling. And right now he's feeling really lousy. So be good to him because it's just a game and it's not going to matter who wins. And what I love about that is you know, you've got this 15-year-old this boy who is in this situation where he can be completely flexible. Now, if they were winning and everything was going great, I reckon that Noah, he would have been like, come on, come on, come on. But because this kid couldn't do it, he was... He was not so caught up in it, not so stuck in that negative, stinking thinking. And therefore, he was able to be flexible, recognize what the needs of the situation were, and then live based on his values, regardless of the situation. Mm. I just thought, what a, what a brilliant example of uh, maturity 
and empathy, but mostly of this capacity to be psychologically flexible, to not get caught up in this rigid thinking. So how do we grow in that area? How do we develop ourselves, flexible thinking, and how do we help others do the same? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a couple of things that we're supposed to do, and I, I kind of outline these steps for parents to help their kids, but they're just as applicable for us mm. when I'm writing this book. So one of the things that I suggest is that we need to be comfortable with any emotion. You see, when we start to resist our negative emotions, uh, Carl Jung said, what you resist persists. And the more you try to force an emotion away, the more you try to suppress it, the more it comes back. In fact, there's, uh, if, if I said to you right now, Dave, whatever you do, don't think of a white bear. <laughs> okay. And as soon as you think of a white bear, just say, dang it. Yeah. Yeah. Dang it already. Yeah. <laughs> white bear the whole time. Thanks. <laughs> it's going and going and going. Yeah. So there's this Harvard psychologist, his name's Daniel Wegner. He passed away a couple of years ago, but in the 1980s, 1990s, he, he came across a, a statement about this white bear by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Uh, the, the great novelist philosopher. Uh, and Dostoevsky uh, basically said, um, don't think of a, a white bear and your mind will not stop thinking about whether or not you're thinking about it, which means that you'll have to think about it to think about whether you're not thinking yes. about it. Yeah. And Dan Wegner, this Harvard psychologist, he gets this idea and he says, I wonder if we can study this empirically. So he brings people into the lab and, and, and he mm. says to one group of people, they're all there one by one, by the way, but mm. you know, half the participants are told, for the next five minutes, we're going to record you just speaking about whatever you're thinking. It's just this free association, whatever pops into your head, just, just tell us, just keep on talking every thought that you have. And by the way, if you happen to think of any white bears, let us know. Just ring the bell when you think of a white bear. You're welcome to do it. It doesn't matter whether you do or not, but just ring the bell in case you do. But with the other group, he says, whatever you do, don't think of a white bear. And if you think of the white bear, ring the bell. Right. And what he found was that the group of people who were told that they could, they barely thought of it at all. In the five minutes that they were being recorded, they might think of it once, perhaps twice in that five-minute period. But for the people who were told, please don't, whatever you do, don't think of a white bear, they were ringing that bell on average once per minute. But quite often they were ringing it a whole lot more than that. Wow. And here's where it gets really interesting. At the end of the five minutes, he said, okay, the experiment's over. For the next five minutes now, we're just going to continue having you free associate and we'll record it. And you can think about whatever you want once again. And once again, if you happen to think of a white bear, let us know. And both groups now are told they can think about whatever they want, including white bears. The group that were told, that they could think about anything from the very beginning. They didn't think about white bears any more or any less. They barely came up. But the group that had been told don't think of white bears, not only had they already thought about white bears significantly more, but in this post-suppression stage, they started thinking about white bears even more. Like, they were just going, ding, ding. And it was like, dang it, dang it, dang it. There it is again. <laughs> and and I, I think this is fascinating because research since then has expanded on this and, and found that if you're a um, if you're about to go through something painful and you try to suppress the pain, mm. you know what happens? You actually feel the pain more. You rate it as more painful than people who are not having to suppress the pain. Uh, there was a, another one where people were watching a medical procedure, an arm being amputated, and they were told to either envision it as a, a medical procedure or to just watch it and say what they thought. And what they found was that the people who were watching it to just you know, say what they thought, they found it as significantly more disturbing to watch this arm amputation occurring, whereas the people who were watching it as a medical procedure didn't think that it was particularly disturbing at all because they could see that it was, you know, they, they, were, they were framing it as that. When we're trying to suppress the negativity, it comes back out whether we want it to or not. Mm. And the big one, 
the one that I think is most important for us in our family life and, and for educators who might be listening to a podcast like this is parents were told to suppress their conflict. Parents were told that they weren't supposed to let anybody know that they were in a bad mood and, you know, if they were having a, an argument to suppress it. And what the researchers found is that parents who were suppressing versus those who were non-suppressing, they were much more punitive. They were much nastier. The, the emotional climate in their home was significantly worse than parents who were allowed to acknowledge how they were feeling. Now, this, by the way, doesn't mean that we should walk into the house and say, I'm cranky and I'm going to let the whole world know and we don't shut the house down. They weren't given that instruction. They were, they were told, if you're having a bad time, have the conversation. Mm-hmm. Let people know that you're not doing so well right now versus if you're having a hard time, just keep it in. Don't let anybody know. The suppression forces a sense of rigidity. We feel like we're trapped. And we have this basic psychological need where we want to be in control. We want to have a sense of autonomy. And when we can't have that, it bubbles out of us in all sorts of negative, dysfunctional, unhelpful ways. And we become psychologically rigid. All we can focus on is the thing we're not supposed to be focusing on. You know, for golfers, uh, they did some studies where, have you heard of the yips? If you're a golfer Mm -hmm. and you get the yips, it's where you, you just can't hit the ball properly. And so they went out on the golf course with these golfers and they said to them, whatever you do, don't overshoot this putt. And you know what? On average, every golfer they set it to overshot by at least 20 centimetres compared to the ones who were told just focus on getting the ball where you want it. Mm. Uh, With soccer players, they said to them either kick the penalty goal anywhere so long as it goes into the net, just kick that ball into the net. Or they said to some soccer players, kick the ball into the net but don't kick it into this corner. And you know the ones that were told not to kick it into this corner? On average, they kicked it into that corner more. It seems like The more you try to push it down, the more it bubbles over, the more tunnel vision you get, the more rigid you become. So psychological flexibility is critical because it helps us to see that we're starting to get tunnel vision and we're going to end up going in a direction that we don't want to go. Mm. The only time we don't want to be psychologically flexible is when you've got something really good in mind and you're, you're going a million miles an hour at it and you know that you can get there. But even then, sometimes if we're too inflexible, we might trample over people or emotions in the pursuit of our goal. We might end up becoming quite a horrible person because we're so single-minded. Uh, so that, that's kind of, I, I've, I've gone on a little bit more than I meant to, but that's why psychological flexibility really matters. That's really helpful, thank you. And I talk a lot about how, in the programs I do in schools, talk a lot about how where you focus is where you end up. Right, so, right. And I use that example about if you focus on in, you've got a greater chance of kicking the goal or shooting the hoop or whatever. If you focus on on don't miss, then there's a greater chance that you will miss. So it's kind of like, yes, where you focus is where you end up, but what you suppress, what you try not to focus on, you're even more likely to end up there as well, which is really interesting. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And it's such a it's such a key insight because I think this is why it's so important. Acceptance is a really mm. critical concept. We're just we, we're much more resilient when we accept what's hit us. Now, that doesn't mean that we're supposed to lay down and be a victim. It just means that we say, "Okay, here's what's happened. Now what?" I love the story. You know, if if, if we're talking about resilience, have we got time for a, a quick story, or are we, how are we going for time? I've got lots of time. It's up to you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I haven't got a clock, so I'm going to tell you a story. Are you happy to hear a it's, story? It's about eight to two, so I've got as much time as you have. 
Okay, well, I'll have to wrap up with this story. Sure. So if we've got time for one quick story, I think this is probably a really nice way to sort of wrap up our conversation. John McLean uh, is a bloke who lives in Western Sydney, or at least he did many years ago in 1988, uh, when he was out training for a triathlon, the Nepean Triathlon. Triathlons were all the rage at the time, uh, and uh, Mark Scott, uh, no, was it Mark, Mark Allen and Dave Scott were the two guys that were on Wide World of Sports every Saturday afternoon when they were talking about the Hawaii Triathlon. These guys were the best triathletes in the world. And and uh, John McLean, this, this friend of mine, this guy that I've spoken to uh, about an extraordinary experience, he was training for a triathlon. Now, he was an up-and-coming NRL player. Well, it wasn't NRL back then, but whatever it was called back with the, the rugby league. He was yeah. he was looking to be signed by the Penrith Panthers. Uh, he had a rugby league career ahead of him, but he was also thinking maybe triathlon could be a good career. He was a fit, fast, strong young man. Uh, gets hit by a truck on the M4 heading out towards uh, Penrith and the Blue Mountains while he's training for the Nepean Triathlon and breaks bones right throughout his body. I can't remember how many bones he broke, but uh, he broke he, he broke several ribs. He broke one arm in two places. He fractured his pelvis in four places. He, I mean, he just, he got absolutely demolished by this truck. Uh, in fact, I've got it written here. Emergency services were called and John's comatose body was rushed to the hospital. 15 bones were broken. His back had three breaks. His pelvis sustained four. One of his arms was broken in two places. The other one was broken as well. He had a punctured lung, a fractured sternum, broken ribs and more. I mean, this guy got decimated by this mm. truck. So John's in the hospital. He wakes up three days later, doesn't know where he is or what's going on. All he knows is he can't really move, but there's a buzzer in his left hand. So he pushes the buzzer and nurse comes in, explains that he's been in a bike crash and been hit by a truck and he's been in a coma for a few days and he passes out. I mean, he's just, he's, he's a mess. Now, what happens with John is he, he's diagnosed as having what we call a partial paralysis. So he's a paraplegic and everything from the belly button down doesn't work, but there's just a few nerves that are intact down one side of his body. Not enough to move, not enough to do anything. And the doctors have basically said, we're never going to tell you that you can't do anything, John. But once we get to 12 to 24 months post-accident, whatever you've got is pretty much all you'll ever have. Mm-hmm. So about 12, a little, over, a little over 12 months after the accident, John's still in a wheelchair. He's been doing his physio and his rehab, and he's been working so hard. But he's, he's a paraplegic. He can't walk. He can't move his legs at all. He's got nothing from the belly button down. And he sits with his dad and just cries. He grieves. You know, this future that he was supposed to have, the promise and the potential and the opportunity, and it's all been taken away from him. And after he's had a good cry with his dad, and I want to highlight this, you know, people who are resilient, they still hide under the blankets and say, it's, it's too hard. I don't want mm. to do this. They still sometimes look at that hill in front of them and say, I cannot possibly climb another mountain. And that's where John was. But after he's had a good cry with dad, his dad looks at him and he, he says this line, and I think it's profound. He says, John, look at how far you've come. Now, how far can you go? Look at how far you've come. Now, how far can you go? Mm. Talk about a resilience building statement. He's saying, mate, you're doing great, but there's more in you. I know it. And what I love about it is this, this is this show of faith from dad to his son. You've got this, mate. Come on, you can do this. How far do you really want to go? So John took that to heart mm. and he started training, 
training his backside off. And a couple of years later, he ends up back at the Nepean Triathlon. It's the mid-1990s, and he becomes Australia's first paraplegic triathlete. It's hard to believe how far we've come in 25 years. But in the mid-1990s, he becomes Australia's first paraplegic triathlete. Mm -hmm. No one in a wheelchair had ever done a triathlon before. So he competes at the Nepean Triathlon. Why? Because that's the one that he was training for when he got cleaned up. And, and he, he had this belief, you know, what you hold on to in life holds on to you. So he had to, he had to let go of Nepean. And he did, but not quite. And I'll tell you why soon. Anyway, over the next few years, John trains up and trains up. He ends up competing in the Hawaiian Ironman. So we've got a 3.8K swim, a 180K bike, and then a 42K run. Obviously, he's in the wheelchair for the run, and he's using hand pedals for the bike. But he, he competes. Mm two years in a row, and on the third year, he actually comes in beating the cutoff time for able-bodied athletes. Same year, he goes and swims the English Channel and becomes the first paraplegic, in fact, I think the first man to do both an Ironman and an English Channel swim. And by the way, it took him 12 hours and 55 minutes to swim the Channel. Mm. I don't know if you can imagine being in that water for 12 hours, 55 minutes. That's a long time yeah. to go for a swim. That's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. He goes and represents Australia at the Paralympics and wins medals at the at the Paralympics in rowing. But there was something more that he wanted to do. And the resilience that he's already shown is extraordinary. But uh, in the mid-2010s, uh, in around 2013, 2014, he starts doing some work with some people who view the world a little bit differently. See, he's got in his head that he wants to walk. After, well, it's been since 1988, so it's been nearly... Uh, nearly 30 years since he's walked, but he's got it in his head. So they make some carbon fiber braces for his legs for support. They get him onto a stationary bike. They start doing all of this work. And after a little while, he starts adding load to his legs. He starts building muscle. His legs start working a little bit. And then he gets onto a regular conventional bike. And a couple of years ago, John McLean did what everyone said was just impossible. He went to the Nepean Triathlon again, and this time he competed as an able-bodied athlete. Mm. He did the swim, then he did the bike on a regular bike, and then using crutches and braces, and he didn't actually run it, he walked the run leg, one painstaking step at a time with his wife and his little boy crossing the finish line holding them and and celebrating what everyone had said was impossible. Now, I hear a story like that, Dave, and I just think to myself, this is resilience. This is resilience. And, and it's not about just saying, yeah, I think I can, positive thinking, I've got this. What it is is about saying, what do I want? What are the obstacles? And what's my plan to get around the obstacles? And you know what? Some days I'm going to lay in bed and cry. Some days I'm going to go and eat KFC for lunch. Some days I'm going to throw the program out the window and just let it all go down the drain but I'm not gonna do it two days in a row. I might have a bad day now and then, but I'm gonna get up tomorrow if I've had a lousy day and I'm gonna, I'm gonna make up for it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this work. You know, in the front of my book, since we're talking resilience in this book, mm. in the front of my book, Nine Ways to Resilient Child, I've made the dedication for my six precious, precious daughters. When life puts you in a tight spot, don't ask, why me? Instead, stand tall and say, try me. Yeah, that's um. You got me all choked up, Justin. Uh, <laughs> that that story is beautiful. That whole idea about um, look how far you've come, now imagine how far you can go. Um, I've got 
just his ability to be able to come back and do the full Ironman. I've got friends who do the Ironman and um, I've run a marathon, but to do it in crutches would be incredible. Um, such a powerful story. And again, I love that idea about not why me, but try me. Um, some great, I think, phrases there to be able to help us all. And, and just that ability, but what you're saying before about um, to really accept where you are. And, you know, you can have an off day, you can have your KFC for lunch day where you, you go and cry in the corner for a while. And, well, that was pretty much me yesterday. Um, but then, you, you know, it's like, okay, I'm going to have this today. I'm going to allow it to happen. I'm going to accept it for what it is and have this really down day, let the emotion be what it is. And then tomorrow's a new day. Tomorrow going to come back and try me tomorrow. Um, so just that idea about, and I think, you know, there's so many other things that would be awesome to talk to you about today too, Justin, but to, you know, to honor your time, I think it's important to wrap it up very shortly, but um, just that, you know, the misconception about to be resilient, we need to be strong and okay all the time. When in fact, to be resilient, I think a big key with that is to, as you said, to accept where you are to let yourself be in that the depth of that emotion and then to, to come out the other end and to go, okay, I've done that, I've accepted where I am, I've had a difficult time and now try me, now I'm going to bounce back. Um, so, yeah, some really powerful reminders there, Justin. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. It's been, uh, it's been nice to talk to you about it. I hope that's helpful. Yeah, thank you. And there's, there's one last question I like to ask every guest. And I'd love to hear your perspective on this as well. And that is, what does doing life better mean to you? You know, as humans, we're designed to grow. Uh, there's a, a theory that I subscribe to quite strongly uh, in the psychological sciences called self-determination theory. And one of the underpinning ideas behind this theory, which is very much at odds with most theories that are out there around the purpose of human life, mm. it, it argues that we are we have a natural tendency towards growth and improvement. But we need to be in an environment that supports rather than thwarts that growth. And the environments that support that growth are environments where we have good relationships. We get to have consistent small wins. And we have a sense of volition and choice over what's going on in our lives. Mm. That's how we that's how we grow. So my answer to that question would be it's it's about the continual improvement that we're designed to have and the best way to get that is that we have these environments that support us in our efforts. Uh, as as a parent or as an educator, our job therefore for our children or for our students is to say what can I do to build strong relationships because when my kids or when my students are in an environment where their relationships are strong and positive, they're much more likely to want to be in that environment. When, what can I do to help them to have small wins? Because the more competent they're feeling, the more motivated they'll be to keep on trying. It's when they feel incompetent that they want to give up. And what can I do to hand as much control over to them as I can? How can I support their autonomy? Because the more I'm giving them choices and opportunities, the more likely it is that they're going to be motivated. Whereas when I'm always telling them what to do, you know, and they roll their eyes and like, oh, I don't want to do that. So that, that's a long way of answering the question. But essentially, meeting those three basic psychological needs is what it is that helps us to move forward and progress and continually improve. Nice one. Justin, thank you. Um, and every time I read your books and listen to your podcast, 
you're a great reminder for me to continue that growth as well. And and I love your generosity. Um, again, the way that you have dedicated so much of your time to helping families, um, to be happier, um, happier families, to help kids be a lot more resilient. Um, you know, for the work that you're doing. Thank you very much. Thank you for your incredible generosity also with your time today, Justin. And um, yeah, again, thank you very much for joining me. Dave, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, there we go, everyone. I told you that story at the end was quite an emotional one. And I love what he said about, look how far you've come and imagine how far you can get. I know that I find that really inspiring at the moment. So that's really helpful for these crazy times, for the impact COVID-19 has had on my business and, and what I'm doing at the moment. And I've even used that same phrase just in the last couple of days with my son. So maybe that could be a good focus for you for this week. And being psychologically flexible by being open to different ways of interpreting and thinking about events and situations in your life. If this has been helpful for you, I'm sure it has been. If it has, please do share it on social media. Uh, tag Dr. Justin Carlson and tag myself on Instagram. You can also join the Do Life Better Facebook group. I'd love to see you in there. Please make sure you share it with friends and family who you know could do with a bit of a boost from hearing these tips, this wisdom from Dr. Justin Carlson today. And if you haven't, please do me one really big favor. Go down to the bottom of your podcast app, leave a rating and a review. That would be incredibly helpful for me if you could do that, please. So thank you very much for joining me today and all the very best as you continue to do your life even better each and every day.